Chapter Twenty, Part One of A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne Spiegel. A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, by William Law. Chapter Twenty, Recommending Devotion at Twelve O'Clock, Called in Scripture the Sixth Hour of the Day the frequency of devotion equally desirable by all orders of people. Universal love is here recommended to be the subject of prayer at this hour, of intercession as an act of universal love. It will perhaps be thought by some people that these hours of prayer come too thick, that they can only be observed by people of great leisure, and ought not to be pressed upon the generality of men who have the cares of families, trades and employments, nor upon the gentry, whose state and figure in the world cannot admit of this frequency of devotion, and that it is only fit for monasteries and nunneries, or such people as have no more to do in the world than they have. To this it is answered, first, that this method of devotion is not pressed upon any sort of people, as absolutely necessary, but recommended to all people, as the best, the happiest, and the most perfect way of life. And if a great and exemplary devotion is as much the greatest happiness and perfection of a merchant, a soldier, or a man of quality, as it is the greatest happiness and perfection of the most retired, contemplative life, then it is as proper to recommend it without any abatements to one order of men as to another, because happiness and perfection are of the same worth and value to all people. The gentlemen and the tradesmen may, and must, spend much of their time differently from the pious monk in the cloister, or the contemplative hermit in the desert. But then, as the monk and hermit lose the ends of retirement, unless they make it all serviceable to devotion, so the gentleman and merchant fail of the greatest ends of a social life, and live to their loss in the world, unless devotion be their chief and governing temper. It is certainly very honest and creditable for people to engage in trades and employments. It is reasonable for gentlemen to manage well their estates and families, and such recreations as are proper to their state. But then every gentleman and tradesman loses the greatest happiness of his creation, is robbed of something that is greater than all employments, distinctions, and pleasures of the world, if he does not live more to piety and devotion than to anything else in the world. Here are, therefore, no excuses made for men of business and figure in the world. First, because it would be to excuse them from that which is the greatest end of living, and be only finding so many reasons for making them less beneficial to themselves, and less serviceable to God and the world. Secondly, because most men of business and figure engage too far in worldly matters, much farther than the reasons of human life or the necessities of the world require. Merchants and tradesmen, for instance, are generally ten times farther engaged in business than they need, which is so far from being a reasonable excuse for their want of time for devotion that it is their crime and must be censured as a blamable instance of covetousness and ambition. The gentry, and people of figure, either give themselves up to states of employments, 
or to the gratifications of their passions in a life of gaiety and debauchery. And if these things might be admitted as allowable avocations from devotion, devotion must be reckoned a poor circumstance of life. Unless gentlemen can shew that they have another God than the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, another nature than that which is derived from Adam, another religion than the Christian, it is vain to plead their state and dignity and pleasures as reasons for not preparing their souls for God by a strict and regular devotion. For since piety and devotion are the common unchangeable means of saving all the souls in the world that shall be saved, there is nothing left for the gentleman, the soldier, and the tradesman, but to take care that their several states be, by care and watchfulness, by meditation and prayer, made states of an exact and solid piety. If a merchant, having forbore from too great business, that he might quietly attend on the service of God, should therefore die worth twenty instead of fifty thousand pounds, could any one say that he had mistaken his calling, or gone a loser out of the world? If a gentleman should have killed fewer foxes, been less frequent at balls, gaming, and merry meetings, because stated parts of his time had been given to retirement, to meditation, and devotion, could it be thought that when he left the world, he would regret the loss of those hours that he had given to the care and improvement of his soul? If a tradesman, by aspiring after Christian perfection, and retiring himself often from his business, should, instead of leaving his children fortunes to spend in luxury and idleness, leave them to live by their own honest labor, could it be said that he had made a wrong use of the world, because he had shown his children that he had more regard to that which is eternal than to this which is soon to be at an end? Since, therefore, devotion is not only the best and most desirable practice in a cloister, but the best and most desirable practice of men, as men, and in every state of life, they that desire to be excused from it, because they are men of figure and estates, and business, are no wiser than those that should desire to be excused from health and happiness, because they were men of figures and estates. I cannot see why every gentleman, merchant or soldier, should not put these questions seriously to himself. What is the best thing for me to intend and drive at in all my actions? How shall I do to make the most of human life? What ways shall I wish that I had taken when I am leaving the world. Now, to be thus wise, and to make thus much use of our reason, seems to be but a small and necessary piece of wisdom. For how can we pretend to sense and judgment, if we dare not seriously consider, and answer, and govern our lives by that which such questions require of us? Shall a nobleman think his birth too high a dignity to condescend to such questions as these, or tradesmen think his business too great to take any care about himself? Now here is desired no more devotion in any one's life than the answering these few questions require. Any devotion that is not to the greater advantage of him that uses it than anything that he can do in the room of it, any devotion that does not procure an infinitely greater good, that cannot be got by neglecting it, is freely yielded up. Here is no demand of it. But if people will live in so much ignorance as never to put these questions to themselves, but push on a blind life at all chances, in quest of they know not what or why, 
without ever considering the worth or value or tendency of their actions, without considering what God, reason, and eternity, and their own happiness require of them. It is for the honor of devotion that none can neglect it, but those who are thus inconsiderate, who dare not inquire after that which is the best and the most worthy of their choice. It is true, Claudius, you are a man of figure and estate, and are to act the part of such a station of human life. You are not called, as Elijah was, to be a prophet, or as St. Paul, to be an apostle. But will you therefore not love yourself? Will you not seek and study your own happiness, because you are not called to preach up the same things to other people? You would think it very absurd for a man not to value his own health, because he was not a physician, or the preservation of his limbs, because he was not a bone-setter. Yet it is more absurd for you, Claudius, to neglect the improvement of your soul in piety, because you are not an apostle or a bishop. Consider this text of Scripture. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if, through the Spirit, ye do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. Do you think that this scripture does not equally relate to all mankind? Can you find any exception here for men of figure and estate? Is not a spiritual and devout life here made the common condition on which all men are to become sons of God? Will you leave hours of prayer and rules of devotion to particular states of life, when nothing but the same spirit of devotion can save you, or any man, from eternal death? Consider again this text. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in the body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 Now, if your estate would excuse you from appearing before this judgment seat, if your figure could protect you from receiving according to your works, there would be some pretense for your leaving devotion to other people. But if you, who are now thus distinguished, must then appear naked amongst common souls, without any other distinction from others but such as your virtues or sins give you, does it not as much concern you, as any prophet or apostle, to make the best provision for the best rewards at that great day? Again, consider this great doctrine of the Apostle. For none of us, that is, of us Christians, liveth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. For to this end Christ both died and rose, and revived that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Now are you, Claudius, accepted out of the doctrine of this text? Will you, because of your condition, leave it to any particular sort of people to live and die unto Christ? If so, you must leave it to them to be redeemed by the death and resurrection of Christ. For it is the express doctrine of the text that for this end Christ died and rose again, that none of us should live to himself. It is not that priests or apostles, monks or hermits, should live no longer to themselves, but that none of us, that is, no Christian, of what state soever, should live unto himself. 
If, therefore, there be any instances of piety, any rules of devotion, which you can neglect, and yet live as truly unto Christ as if you observed them, this text calls you to no such devotion. But if you forsake such devotion, as you yourself know is expected from some particular sorts of people, such devotion as you know becomes people that live wholly unto Christ, that aspire after greater piety, if you neglect such devotion for any worldly consideration, that you may live more to your own temper and taste, more to the fashions and ways of the world, you forsake the terms on which all Christians are to receive the benefit of Christ's death and resurrection. Observe farther how the same doctrine is taught by St. Peter. As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 15 If, therefore, Claudius, you are one of those that are here called, you see what it is that you are called to. It is not to have so much religion as suits with your temper, your business, or your pleasures. It is not to a particular sort of piety that may be sufficient for gentlemen of figure and estates. But it is, first, to be holy, as he who hath called you is holy. Secondly, it is to be thus holy in all manner of conversation, that is, to carry this spirit and degree of holiness into every part, and through the whole form of your life. And the reason the Apostle immediately gives, why the spirit of holiness must be the common spirit of Christians, as such, is very affecting, and such as equally calls upon all sorts of Christians. For as much as ye know, says he, that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, but with the precious blood of Christ, etc. As if he had said, For as much as ye know, ye were made capable of this state of holiness, entered into a society with Christ, and made heirs of his glory, not by any human means, but by such a mysterious instance of love, as infinitely exceeds everything that can be thought of in this world. Since God has redeemed you to himself, and your own happiness, at so great a price, how base and shameful must it be, if you do not henceforth devote yourselves wholly to the glory of God, and become holy, as he who hath called you is holy. If, therefore, Claudius, you consider your figure and estate, or if, in the words of the text, you consider your gold and silver, and the corruptible things of this life, as any reason why you may live to your own humor and fancy, why you may neglect a life of strict piety and great devotion, if you think anything in the world can be an excuse for your not imitating the holiness of Christ in the whole course and form of your life, you may make yourself as guilty as if you should neglect the holiness of Christianity for the sake of picking straws. For the greatness of this new state of life to which we are called in Christ Jesus, to be for ever as the angels of God in heaven, and the greatness of the price by which we are made capable of this state of glory, has turned everything that is worldly, temporal, and corruptible into an equal littleness, and made it as great baseness and folly, as great a contempt of the blood of Christ, to neglect any degrees of holiness, because you are a man of some estate and quality, as it would be to neglect it, because you had a fancy to pick straws." 
Again, the same apostle saith, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19-20 to 20. How poorly, therefore, Claudius, have you read the scripture? How little do you know of Christianity, if you can talk of your estate and condition as a pretense for a freer kind of life? Are you any more your own than he who has no estate or dignity in the world? Must mean and little people preserve their bodies as temples of the Holy Ghost by watching, fasting, and prayer, but may you indulge yourselves in idleness, in lusts, and sensuality, because ye have so much rent, or such a title of distinction? How poor and ignorant are such thoughts as these! And yet you must either think thus, or else acknowledge that the holiness of saints, prophets, and apostles, is the holiness that you are to labor after with all the diligence and care that you can. And if you leave it to others, to live in such piety and devotion, in such self-denial, humility, and temperance, as may render them able to glorify God in their body and in their spirit, you must leave it to them also to have the benefit of the blood of Christ. Again the Apostle saith, You know how we exhorted, comforted, and charged every one of you that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you to his kingdom and glory. You, perhaps, Claudius, have often heard these words without ever thinking how much they required of you, and yet you cannot consider them without perceiving to what an eminent state of holiness they call you. For how can the holiness of the Christian life be set before you in higher terms than when it is represented to you as walking worthy of God? Can you think of any abatements of virtue, any neglects of devotion, that are well consistent with a life that is to be made worthy of God? Can you suppose that any man walks in this manner, but that he watches over all his steps, and considers how everything he does may be done in the spirit of holiness? And yet as high as these expressions carry this holiness, it is here plainly made the necessary holiness of all Christians. For the apostle does not here exhort his fellow apostles and saints to this holiness, but he commands all Christians to endeavor after it. We charged, says he, every one of you, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you to his kingdom and glory. Again, St. Peter saith, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability that God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Do you not hear, Claudius, plainly perceive your high calling? Is he that speaketh, to have such regard to his words, that he appear to speak as by the direction of God? Is he that giveth, to take care that he so giveth, that what he disposeth of may appear to be a gift that he hath of God? And is all this to be done, that God may be glorified in all things? Must it not then be said, Has any man nobility, dignity of state, or figure in the world, let him so use his nobility or figure of life, that it may appear he uses these as gifts of God, for the greater setting forth of his glory. Is there now, Claudius, anything forced or far-fetched in this conclusion? 
is it not the plain sense of the words that everything in life is to be made a matter of holiness unto God? If so, then your estate and dignity is so far from excusing you from great piety and holiness of life, that it lays you under a greater necessity of living more to the glory of God, because you have more of his gifts that may be made serviceable to it. For people, therefore, of figure, or business, or dignity in the world, to leave great piety and eminent devotion to any particular orders of men, or such as they think have little else to do in the world, is to leave the kingdom of God to them. For it is the very end of Christianity to redeem all orders of men into one holy society, that rich and poor, high and low, ministers and servants, may in one and the same spirit of piety become a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that are to shew forth the praises of him who hath called them out of darkness into his marvellous light. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 This much being said, to shew that great devotion and holiness is not to be left to any particular sort of people, but to be the common spirit of all that desire to live upon the terms of common Christianity. I now proceed to consider the nature and necessity of universal love, which is here recommended to be the subject of your devotion at this hour. You are here also called to intercession as the most proper exercise to raise and preserve that love. By intercession is meant a praying to God and interceding with Him for our fellow creatures. Our blessed Lord hath recommended His love to us, as the pattern and example of our love to one another. As therefore He is continually making intercession for us all, so ought we to intercede and pray for one another. A new commandment, saith He, I give unto you, that ye love one another, as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. The newness of this precept did not consist in this, that men were commanded to love one another, for this was an old precept, both of the law of Moses and of nature. But it was new in this respect, that it was to imitate a new, and till then unheard of example of love, it was to love one another as Christ had loved us. And if men are to know that we are disciples of Christ, by thus loving one another according to his new example of love, then it is certain that if we are void of this love, we make it as plainly known to men that we are none of his disciples. There is no principle of the heart that is more acceptable to God than a universal fervent love to all mankind, wishing and praying for their happiness, because there is no principle of the heart that makes us more like God, who is love and goodness itself, and created all things for their enjoyment of happiness. The greatest idea that we can frame of God is, when we conceive Him to be a being of infinite love and goodness, using an infinite wisdom and power for the common good and happiness of all His creatures. The highest notion, therefore, that we can form of man is, when we conceive him as one like God in this respect as he can be, using all his infinite faculties, whether of wisdom, power, or prayers, for the common good of all his fellow creatures, heartily desiring they may have all the happiness they are capable of, and as many benefits and assistances from him as his state and condition in the world will permit him to give them. And, on the other hand, what a baseness and iniquity is there in all instances of hatred, envy, spite, and ill-will. If we consider 
that every instance of them is so far acting in opposition to God, and intending mischief and harm to those creatures which God favors and protects and preserves, in order to their happiness. An ill-natured man amongst God's creatures is the most perverse creature in the world, acting contrary to that love by which himself subsists, and which alone gives substance to all that variety of beings that enjoy life in any part of the creation. Whatsoever ye would, then, men should do unto you, even so do unto them. Now, though this is a doctrine of strict justice, yet it is only a universal love that can comply with it. For as love is the measure of our acting towards ourselves, so we can never act in the same manner towards other people till we look upon them with that love with which we look upon ourselves. As we have no degrees of spite, or envy, or ill-will to ourselves, so we cannot be disposed towards others, as we are towards ourselves, till we universally renounce all instances of spite and envy and ill-will, even in the smallest degrees. If we had any imperfection in our eyes that made us see any one thing wrong, for the same reason they would show us a hundred things wrong. So if we have any temper of our hearts that makes us envious, or spiteful, or ill-natured towards any one man, the same temper will make us envious, and spiteful, and ill-natured toward a great many more. If, therefore, we desire this divine nature of love, we must exercise and practice our hearts in the love of all, because it is not Christian love till it is the love of all. If a man could keep this whole law of love, and yet offend in one point, he would be guilty of all. For as one allowed instance of injustice destroys the justice of all our other actions, so one allowed instance of envy, spite, and ill-will renders all our other acts of benevolence and affection nothing worth. Acts of love that proceed not from a principle of universal love are but like acts of justice that proceed from a heart not disposed to universal justice. A love which is not universal may indeed have tenderness and affection, but it hath nothing of righteousness or piety in it. It is but humor and temper or interest, or such a love as publicans and heathens practice. All particular envies and spites are as plain departures from the spirit of Christianity as any particular acts of injustice. For it is as much a law of Christ to treat everybody as your neighbor, and to love your neighbor as yourself, as it is a law of Christianity to abstain from theft. Now the noblest motive to this universal tenderness and affection is founded in this doctrine. God is love, and he that dwelleth in him dwelleth in God. Who, therefore, whose heart has any tendency towards God, would not aspire after this divine temper, which so changes and exalts our nature into a union with him? How should we rejoice in the exercise and practice of this love, which, so often as we feel it, is so often an assurance to us, that God is in us, that we act according to his Spirit, who is love itself? But we must observe that love has then only this mighty power of uniting us to God, when it is so pure and universal, as to imitate that love which God beareth to all his creatures. God willeth the happiness of all beings, though it is no happiness to himself. Therefore we must desire the happiness of all beings, though no happiness cometh to us from it. God equally delighteth in the perfections of all his creatures. Therefore we should rejoice in those perfections whenever we see them and be as glad to have other people perfect as ourselves. 
as god forgiveth all and giveth grace to all so we should forgive all those injuries and affronts which we receive from others and do all the good we can to them god almighty besides his own great example of love which ought to draw all his creatures after it has so provided for us and made our happiness so common to us all that we have no occasion to envy or hate one another for we cannot stand in one another's way or by enjoying any particular good keep another from his full share of it as we cannot be happy but in the enjoyment of god so we cannot rival or rob one another of this happiness and as to other things the enjoyments and prosperities of this life they are so little in themselves so foreign to our happiness and generally speaking so contrary to that which they appear to be that they are no foundation for envy spite or hatred how silly it would be to envy a man that was drinking poison out of a golden cup and yet who can say that he is acting wiser than thus when he is envying an instance of worldly greatness how many saints has adversity sent to heaven and how many poor sinners has prosperity plunged into everlasting misery a man seems then to be in the most glorious state when he has conquered disgraced and humbled his enemy though it may be that same conquest has saved his adversary and undone himself this man had perhaps never debauched but for his fortune and advancement that had never been pious but through his poverty and disgrace she that is envied for her beauty may perchance owe all her misery to it and another may be for ever happy for having no admirers of her person one man succeeds in everything and so loses all another meets with nothing but crosses and disappointments and thereby gains more than all the world is worth this clergyman may be undone by his being made a bishop and that may save both himself and others by being fixed to his first poor vicarage how envied was alexander when conquering the world he built towns set up his statues and left marks of his glory in so many kingdoms and how despised was the poor preacher st paul when he was beaten with rods and yet how strangely was the world mistaken in their judgment how much to be envied was st paul how much to be pitied was alexander these few reflections sufficiently show us that the different conditions of this life have nothing in them to excite our uneasy passions nothing that can reasonably interrupt our love and affection to one another end of chapter 20 part 1